0: Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one-stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gussis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey,
1: everybody. Today we're going to be looking at a recently hot game in the trick-taking genre, The Crew. The Quest for Planet Nine. Yeah. Are are we going to have to say the subtitle every time we mention the game? I mean, why not? (laughs) So yeah, we'll be looking at The Crew, the Quest for Planet 9 today, and then we'll get into a design discussion on trick-taking games in general, uh, trying to look at them from a co-op perspective,
0: but also talking about some competitive ones as well. Absolutely. You know, this game has been getting a lot of buzz. It came out in Germany first at Essen last year. And ever since then, people have just been talking about it, talking about it. People got the German edition. It literally came out a few months later in English. So, but people were really hot to get this one. So let's see if uh, it was worth all the buzz.
1: But before we get into that, we do want to thank some of our Patreon supporters. And especially in our current uh, turbulent times, economic times, and such, uh, we really appreciate the people who uh, can spare a little bit of their extra change for our show. We really appreciate your support. But of course, uh, we understand anyone who uh, needs to cut back for a while. Times are clearly unsure for a lot of people. But again, we appreciate all of you. So uh, three names we're going to thank today. Simon Fontaine, a co-op fan, Patrick Fawcett, a co-op lover, and Sean Gibbons, a co-op MVP. So, Simon, Patrick, Sean, thank you all for your support, and everyone who supports the uh, channel, who goes on the YouTube videos or on the podcast episodes and comments, uh, who's on our Slack. We appreciate all of you. Uh, I don't know about you, Peter, but definitely our great board gaming community is keeping me a little bit more sane in uh, the current
0: crisis. Yeah, it's funny. I used to use it as a more social out look, but now I'm using it for finding gaming partners. We've certainly drafted some people to come into uh, our D&D campaign. Well, I mean, it was just Steve, but hey, we've we've got more people to game with now. we played online games with people from the Slack. So it's really a neat community that's being built there. And I've been playing Mage Knight the last couple days and people have been helping me with rules questions and sharing their stories with me. So it's just a great community. I, I really love everyone in that community.
1: Yeah, and I'll say, speaking of online gaming, uh, while I've played the crew with my family and Peter's played it with his, we both bought a copy, we've played with each other only through Tabletop Simulator. They have a really good uh, mod on there. So if you want to try the game out after you hear our review, go check it out there. It's pretty well done.
0: Yeah, and if you like it, then make sure you give them your money, because right now, everybody's struggling financially, and it's like, what, a $15 game? So we'll get into our final thoughts later, but if you play it and you enjoy it, support your publishers out there, because it's a real hard time for everybody right now.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really great point. All right, so with that being said, we'll get into our review of The Crew. If you haven't listened to our show before, welcome. And our format here is we're each going to talk about the five things that stood out to us in the design and play of the game the most. We'll go from number five, the least important of the five things, all the way to our number one. And then we'll end with our final thoughts. But first, uh, Peter, do you want to get into the
0: theme of the crew, the quest for Planet Nine, as such as there is one? All right, you're a crew on a starship searching for Planet Nine. Yep, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you start out with some training missions and then you go out and you you have these s- space explorations. To be honest, it takes as long to read the flavor text <laughs> as it as it does to play each of the missions. So, uh they do have a lot of flavor text in there if you're into that, but uh yeah, I haven't been reading it. What I probably will do is go back and like read it at the end and like get the whole story of what I just did.
1: Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll get into that with (laughs) our points in a little bit. But yeah, in terms of the actual gameplay, we'll talk about a lot of this in our review, so I won't go into too many details. But this is a trick-taking game, if you don't know what that means. It means that one player will lead a card from a suit, or in this case, a color. Every other player has to follow suit if possible, so play the same color. And the highest-played card of that suit wins what's called the trick, Unless a trump suit, uh, in this case, there are four rocket cards, uh, numbered one through four. If uh, a trump is in the suit, then the highest trump wins instead of the lead color or suit. That's the basics of trick taking. And in this one, kind of the key idea is you'll do these different scenarios. There's 50 of them. And each one will usually give you some task cards, which are just little cards showing the exact same regular cards in the deck. And the players will divide those among themselves. And the key idea is uh, the player with the task has to win the trick that contains the card depicted. So if I have the task that's like three yellow, I need to win one play of cards from each player. I need to have the highest card of the lead suit or the highest trump when the three yellow is in that trick. So that's the basic of the game. There's other stuff like ways you can communicate, but I think we'll get into all that in the review. So uh, Peter, why don't you start with your number five?
0: Before I get into that, I want to tell a little story. So I was teaching this game to my kids, and they are 9 and 12. And when I was teaching it to them, I explained it that it's like war. So if you've never played trick-taking, it's kind of like war, except only one suit counts at a time. So if we're playing green, then the highest green card wins. So that seemed to get the message across to them pretty quickly. Yeah, that wouldn't work for my kids, because...
1: War is an abomination of a game, and I don't know if we'll ever play it, (laughs) but it's a clever way to do it. I never thought about that kind of idea for trick-taking explanation.
0: You know, I never did either, but my kids asked to play War all the time, so I was trying to sell them on this game, and that's where I went with it. (laughs) Well, we'll hear how it went later, but uh, what's your number five, Peter? So my number five is the components. And I typically don't do this, and especially with a game with so few components, But before we played the actual game, you and I had played on Tabletop Simulator before that just at the poker table, and we'd played with poker cards where all the cards are the same size, and it's a a weird thing, but these goal cards you're shooting for are smaller than your regular cards, and just seeing the smaller card and being able to differentiate at a glance what is the goal card versus what is... You can give people hints throughout the game, so you might have cards face up on the table anyway... It's just a really neat, small thing that I really liked. But not only that, the iconography is very clear. The goal cards are very clear. They have these little tokens that you put on the cards themselves that tell you what the goals for the mission are. The graphic design on those is great. They tell you what they need to do. And the last thing about the components is, and and I don't have this separate, so I'm kind of throwing it in here, is in the campaign book itself, there is a way to track your progress, how you've done missions, things like that, and I think that's very clever, and if Mike doesn't talk about it later, then I'll get into more detail about how that's done, but I even think that's well thought out. So I really think they thought out a lot of things really well with the components in this game and made it even easier to play than it would be without those decisions they made.
1: Yeah, I guess I sort of touch on that a bit with my number five, which is uh, the scenario design and the story that you're kind of being told, if you want, in the game book. And this is a mix for me. I think the scenarios are sometimes clever, and they sometimes kind of add in unique ideas, or maybe not unique, but they don't show up too often, and they kind of change things up so you don't feel like you're doing the same thing or having to just take tasks every game. And I guess the story kind of matches sometimes. It's like, hey, you got to fix this. One of you has to fix it. It's like, all right, great. Um, (laughs) But uh, that being said, I think, uh, I I don't know. I I don't really need the scenarios. And honestly, playing through them one by one, I find pretty dull. And I almost, like, just wish they had, like, difficulty levels that were a bit more standard. And even, say, like, in the rulebook, they're like, you can just make your own scenarios. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I mean, that's easier than this. And the storyline is... Working so hard. (laughs) Like this is this is amazing narrative writing and I guess translation for whoever did it from German. This is so much work for nothing. I don't care. I'm not gonna read it. Like I can't imagine that you would go back and read it, Peter, because each mission is like so inane most of the time. It's like, hey, this thing broke. Somebody has to go work on it. I know this other thing broke. We gotta go work on that too. And it's like, oh gosh. So yeah, I I, (laughs) personally I would rather just have like a sheet. If they wanted to have scenarios, it's like, hey, here's like 20 different scenarios of increasing difficulty, or just like a way to like pick a difficulty level that like includes different elements. Like this thing is five difficulty, and this thing is four difficulty. Uh, so you know, I still like the variety in the missions. That's the positive side here. But overall, I think like it's way too much work, and I don't, you know, I, I it, it even makes it more annoying to play because I have to flip through all these pages of this book just to find like the next thing we're doing, I and mean, it's harder to keep track of where you are. So I don't know. I had, a, I had a more negative kind of outlook on the entire structure of like how they chose to do this, adding in this, what I find kind of weird narrative element.
0: Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you, but not very strongly because I don't care that much. I mean, I'm glad that they put the narrative in there. Do I read it? No, absolutely not. Not never. But it shows the amount of passion that they had for this project. I mean, just the fact that somebody went in there and put in the effort to do all of that writing you know, you and I have done some narrative stuff and it's a lot of work to do that. So I don't want to poo-poo their effort, especially on a $15 game. And if you want to vary up the scenarios and and skip ahead and behind, I think you can do that. The reason I'm enjoying the campaign structure is I'm going through it with my kids and I'm like, Oh, only two more missions till we get to this really cool one, which does something really neat. But you're right. Most of the time it's just varying it so minorly that it doesn't matter. And so you're really playing similar missions back to back. But at the same time, it didn't bother me enough to, you know, make it a point positive or negative. I'm enjoying playing through it with my family. And so I think it does that well for people like Yumi and Jerry, even though we've played through every scenario, I think we probably could have skipped ahead without much difficulty at all. Oh my gosh, those first like
1: 10 scenarios for experienced trick-taking people, I was like, I'm so bored.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, the good news is mission one usually lasts one round.
1: (laughs) We'll We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, we'll get to it right now because my number four is the variable length of the game. So unlike most trick-taking games where you have to go through an entire deck of cards, you're dealing out all the cards and you have to go through them, here, as soon as you've completed your goals for that mission, you can end. So for example, if the red 2 was the goal on the first mission and Mike and I were playing and Mike took the red 2, that mission is over. We've won it, and we move on to the next mission. The only negative for that for me is it's a lot of shuffling when you're doing it physically. It's not so bad on a uh, Tabletop Simulator, but in, in real life, those cards are getting a lot of wear and tear. I almost feel like... It sounds crazy because I don't sleeve anything. I almost feel like this game needs to be sleeved, even though it's a $15 game, because you're shuffling those cards so much. Like, literally, you might play for 30 seconds. If you read the narrative, that's another two minutes of reading, and then, uh, (laughs) you know, you're playing the game for, like, you know, 30 seconds or whatever. But sometimes they do some neat things. I don't want to spoil it. I actually want people to go in and play through those missions and experience them for the first time themselves but they do some really neat things with some of the mission designs. And I I just really like how that's done. But the variable length of the missions is something you should be aware of. Some missions will take literally 10 seconds.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, My number four is a positive, and it's the communication tokens. So I didn't get into this in the rules explanation, but each player has a communication token. Now, some missions change how they're used, but I'll talk about the basic idea. Basically, uh, before any trick is played, so before the person who currently has the lead plays the first card, a player can, once per mission, put down one card from their hand. Now, it still counts as being in their hand. And they can uh, put this little token at the top, which means that's the highest card they have in that color. At the bottom, which means it's the lowest-valued card they have in that color. Or in the middle, which means it's the only card they have in that suit. And something I'll talk about later in our design discussion is I love... I mean, I love limited communication in general. You've probably gotten that if you've listened to a lot of our episodes or seen a lot of my reviews, but I like specifically trick-taking limited communication, and this is sort of a weird way to do it because it's not in the trick-taking itself. It's an element outside of the play. But I still really like this, like the cool things you can do with those communication tokens, the cool clues you can give. I really appreciate it kind of adding in because you're not supposed to talk otherwise, adding in some ways for players to kind of be like, no, 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 please don't do this. (laughs) It makes our missions more winnable. And it also, I think, uh, increases kind of the cooperation
0: and kind of uh, cool things you can do in the game. Yeah, no, I really love those clue tokens. They were not on my list, but they're definitely something that I feel like really contributes to the game and really kind of makes it what it is and I like limited communication too I talk way more than I should in this game and that's fine though I mean it's a cooperative game and it's family weight and so for me it doesn't it doesn't bother me that much when I talk more than I should you know maybe I'll get together with some serious players someday and like really try to grind our way through it but it's a fun experience right now, so the limited communication I take with a grain of salt. I guess people would say that's true for me with The Mind as well. No, it absolutely is, <laughs> haven't played The Mind with you. <laughs> but I don't care, because I just want to have fun. All right, so my number three is two-player. We didn't talk much about two-player. It works a little bit differently, because as anybody who's played a trick-taking game knows... Two-player doesn't really work too well, typically. And especially here, where it's completely cooperatively, you wouldn't think it would work very well. I mean, two-player trick-taking is war, I guess, as I said earlier. But the way it works here is you have a third-player dummy hand where half of their cards are dealt face-down and the other half is dealt face-up. And the way you can see those cards that are face-down is you have to play one of the face-up cards and then you reveal the card under it. So the reason this works so well, and it sounded... Kind of dumb to me, actually, and I thought of a million problems with it when we were just theorizing it, but after playing it, it works really, really well. It is super hard. I didn't think it would be harder than the normal game, but I feel like it is, because you're just searching for cards sometimes and you have to do some plays to get rid of those top cards so you can see the underneath card and it was just really clever and i feel like it's even more of a challenge than a three player game to play two players so i really like the challenge there the only hard part is i've played a lot of trick taking games and one person whoever the commander is whoever gets the the highest wild card is the commander has to control that ai player i've played a lot of trick taking games And I even got confused and I was lost a lot of time. So it's really something you have to be on top of your game to do. But I really think it's a nice challenge for experienced trick takers to play the uh, two player game. And I think it works really well.
1: Yeah. And my number six was like the different player counts. And I agree with you. Generally, it's really good. Five player is I mean, I I haven't played five player. I've only played two through four. But five-player, the rulebook says, is much tougher, so they have, like, an additional rule, basically mission 25 and on, where I think you can, like, trade a card between two players. But I think four and three work really well, and then two, like Peter said, you know, has some... Well, we'll get to that in a second, but (laughs) it has some issues, but uh, I I just appreciate that a trick-taking game like this has such a wide option for player count. Yeah, I feel the two-player
0: game's a little bit different of a game, and... I appreciate that. You know, sometimes you play at different player counts and the game feels different. I feel like it feels different at two players for some reason for me.
1: No, no, I agree. I think it's a even more puzzlier thing and the puzzle is more open information, but yet yet it's still very challenging. So I'm with you on that. So my number three kind of touches on two player, touches on uh, what you were saying about games ending early. And this is a full-on con for me, my biggest one for this review. And that's uh, the swinginess of the play. And now don't get me wrong, I had Peter and I will probably talk about this in a little bit in the design discussion, but I'm a seasoned player of Spades, uh, Bridge, Euchre, Pinochle, you know, what have you. I've played like every kind of trick-taking game out there that I can think of. And I know that hands can go swingy and like distributions can be crazy, but I don't know, in a competitive game, especially over the course of many hands, it kind of balances out. But there were many missions uh, in this one where in the two player game, especially with those cards being face down, but in three and four player as well, where you just lose or win or at least have a drastically tougher time winning or a drastically easier time because of how the cards come out. And it really like kind of stuck out with me as times went. And especially Peter already mentioned this. When a mission would end, like, in seconds, and that didn't just happen at the earliest missions when it was really simple. That would sometimes happen, like, really late. Like, just all the tricks would come out in a really simple way. Yep. And then, like, the next time we played almost the exact same level of difficulty, it would be nearly impossible because, like, somebody was forced to take these tasks that totally didn't match their hand. And, like, we had to play the entire hand out just to, like, get rid of their cards so they could do stuff. Those games were sometimes fun, but... Yeah, it it just bothered me a little bit more than it does in competitive trick-taking games, how swingy the play can be and how the balance can be off from hand to hand. And especially like, you know, we didn't care much about tracking our score, but the idea that like the game is tracking how long it took you to beat this as though the mission is like a known quantity and the difficulty is a set value, which is patently untrue once you're actually playing the game. You know, I just found that like a little bit irksome. Maybe number three is too high. Maybe it should have been number four, switch with communication tokens. But yeah, it's definitely like my biggest issue with the game. And that kind of ties into what you said, Peter, about game like hands ending early. And I mean, again, on Tabletop Simulator, not that big a deal, but so frustrating in real play. Like what I did with uh, my family, especially on those early missions, I'd be like, yeah, just keep all your cards. Here's some here's some random cards to fill your hand back out. Let's play with two tasks now. Okay, keep your cards. Let's play with three tasks now. Because it was just, you know, it, it was inane to shuffle for like a minute and deal out and deal out the tasks and all that stuff when uh, <laughs> when, you know, like you're just playing for 10 seconds.
0: Well, I did not do that. But uh, I shuffle and dealt out every time because that doesn't bother me. I mean, yes, it's a little extra downtime, but just like with any trick-taking game or any card game where you're sitting around with people poker night, you end up talking during that time. So I didn't mind that as much. And especially I didn't mind the swinginess, as you were saying, because you're right. That does happen in trick-taking games. And as you said earlier, over the course of the night, it tends to balance out. Well, over the course of 50 missions... It's going to balance out. So yes, you may have a higher or lower score because you got luckier or unluckier, but I think over the course of 50 games, that luck's going to balance out a little bit. All right. So to my number two, though, my number two is that this feels like a trick-taking game. I've played a lot of trick-taking games, just like Mike said. I I was just talking earlier to Mike and I said, you know, in high school, we used to literally meet at lunch every day and we'd play hearts. In college, whenever we weren't playing Magic the Gathering, because that's when I went to college, go figure it out. When Magic came out, we played a lot of that. But whenever we had three or four people, we'd always play spades, especially when we had four people. And we'd have teams within the house. So teams would challenge each other for, like, champions of the house or whatever. So we played a lot of spades in college as well. I played a lot of trick-taking games in my life. I know my family used to like playing them when I was growing up. So this is something that's ingrained in me. And the greatest thing I can say about the mind, or not the mind, gosh, (laughs) I can say a lot of great things about the mind. The greatest thing I can say about the crew, though, is that it feels like a trick-taking game. It feels like it fits in with all those other games, all those skills I learned playing those games I can use here. And so anybody who loves trick-taking games like I do... I think you're going to really like this one. So that's my number two. It feels like a trick-taking game, but with a cooperative spin, which I really appreciate. It really felt different, but yet comfortable. Yeah, and I'll get into that in a moment. But
1: my number two, big pro, and I think this is kind of like the biggest innovation of this game, are the, uh, the task cards and how that changes the trick-taking overall. And I'm going to be comparing this game to the Fox in the Forest duet, because I covered that on the YouTube channel recently, and that was the first cooperative trick-taking game I ever played, and this is the second, so I think it's worth comparing them. But uh, the Fox in the Forest duet, its big innovation, I thought, was that through trick-taking, you moved a token on a board. You know, like, that was the big thing that stood out to me for that game. Sure. for this one, it's the idea that, like, you have these little task cards, and I have to win the trick that contains that card. And I find this really clever. It sets up tons of great, like, skill plays, especially for better trick takers. And, like, just cool, like, situations where, oh my gosh, I gotta take this card, but that that suit is terrible for me. How can the other players work with me to set me up in the long game? Yes, that all plays into the swinginess, and it doesn't always work as well as I would like for an individual hand, But across, like Peter said, the wide berth of like the full playing of the game, it's really neat, really some great strategy, and it's just an awesome innovation on top of the core fun of trick-taking in general.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It is a really nifty idea, although I'll say, when I first heard about those mission cards, I was like, oh, that's it? (laughs) You know what I mean? When you hear about how this game is supposed to be played... It sounds more underwhelming than it is to play it in my mind. Yeah, and I agree with that. Yeah, because it's like, oh, I just got to take this card. And oh, you just got to
1: take that card. That sounds stupid. But that is how it goes with some missions. Again, that's part of the swinginess. But especially in the
0: later missions, it's way more interesting than that. Well, right, right, especially when you have five and you got to get this one first and this one second and like, or you have an Omega card, which means you got to get it last. And it's like the nine of a suit. Yeah, I mean, that definitely leads into the swinginess as well. You know, depending on what card is put where it definitely is easier or harder. But yeah, th- those cards themselves are a great innovation. And even though it sounds kind of simple at first, it really ramps up in an, a nice varying way. And that is actually my number one is the varying challenges that the game gives you. They don't just stick with using those cards every single mission. There are missions, I'll spoil one of them. I think it's the first one that comes up. There are missions where you have to take a trick with a one, for example, which is the lowest card of a suit. So you have to figure out a way to actually win a trick with a one. There are no mission cards, at least in the first one. There are no mission cards on that, so you don't have other goals you have to achieve. The only goal for the entire mission is win a trick with a one. And so it leads to differing and varying gameplays. And I thought they came up with some really neat stuff, especially as you dig deeper into that book, as far as different ways to have you playing trick-taking cooperatively. I I thought that was really ingenious. So my number one is there's a lot of varying challenges in the game, and I really like how they worked.
1: Yeah, an interesting thing about that, and I think I'll talk about this a bit more in my final thoughts, is... I found, I don't know if you found this too, Peter, but, like, when I was playing with my family, who are not experts on trick-taking, some of the early missions especially were, like, teaching them the tricks of trick-taking. Did you kind of notice that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so so I, I guess that does make me think more positively of the scenarios, especially early on. Like, they're like, oh, here's what happens when you run out of suits so somebody else can discard cards from another suit, you know? And, like, that kind of stuff was just cool to see, you know, my wife, for example, uh, playing and, and figuring out... But yeah, my number one is pretty much the same as Peter's number two. And I think it was my number one for my Fox in the Forest duet video. And that's just that I love trick-taking and being able to do it cooperatively is awesome. And this is a good trick-taking game and it plays cooperatively. <laughs> like I'll say my my favorite trick-taking games uh, before this were uh, Spades and then definitely Bridge. Like Bridge, I used to play in tournaments. That was a big, big one for me, especially in my college years. And... The reason I love Spades and Bridge so much is because of the partner play and that you have someone else you are cooperating with, you know, against opponents in this case, but you are cooperating with and like in Bridge, you figure out like your signals of play and your bidding conventions and all that stuff. And I always love those kind of things. So to take away the opponents entirely and for both the Fox in the Forest duet and this one, the crew, to be able to uh, play a trick taking game with everyone being your partner and everyone like having those fun moments together i think that's amazing and uh, like peter said this one even more than fox in the forest duet feels like a regular trick-taking game like the fact that i can play it with four players which is you know kind of the standard trick-taking game player count is awesome it really makes it feel like special so that's my number one i just love that uh, again i'm playing a trick-taking game cooperatively it's one of my favorite things <laughs> all right well, why don't you keep
0: going and get into your final thoughts
1: yeah, so uh, I, I do want to compare to Fox in the Forest Wet for this because I think it is certainly worth looking at. But first, let me talk about the crew, the quest for Planet Nine by itself.
0: You took me seriously. You didn't really have to say the quest for Planet Nine every
1: time. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. Uh, the, the crew, I, I've had a bit of a, a journey with this one. When I first heard about it, like Peter said, I thought it sounded kind of dull. When I first played it, I was enthralled with it, even though some of the early missions are kind of crud. But playing it a lot more, it's, it's waned a little bit. It's not like some amazing game. Like, you know, I've heard people saying this is like a top 10 game. I would not say that even slightly. I think it's, it's fine. I do think it's like pretty easy to get to play. But one complaint I'll say is that even though the game does kind of teach trick takers how to play, I think, and this is something I'll get into the design discussion, I think just teaching a trick taking game to someone can be kind of challenging. So it has a bigger barrier to entry than its casual nature would seem And then also I think in the later missions, like it's really challenging if you aren't fairly seasoned at trick-taking. So you're going to have like frustrations with your group and it might not be fun for everybody. So I think even though it seems like a really accessible game, it's kind of less accessible than it might uh, seem on first blush. But here's the kind of, and this didn't go into the design discussion because it's not really part of the design. I mean, I guess it's kind of part of the scenario design, but I found myself getting bored with the game a bit, and here's the biggest reason why, and I'm curious what you think about this, Peter. So, all the trick taking games I love hearts. You know, you're playing until somebody gets to 100 points, and then you see who has the lowest score, they win. Spades, usually, you play until a certain uh, level or score. Bridge, you play until somebody gets, oh gosh, I can't even remember the terminology anymore, but you know, until you get like the 100 point game and then when you get two of those, you get the the thing, the thing that's worth 500 or 700 points, whatever. So you have like several hands culminating in some like event or some ending and even in the Fox and the Forest duet. I'll say the Fox and the Forest duet is a much more limited game. It's only two players. I think it's also feels more limited because there are so few cars. There's only three suits. So, like, there are some limitations there. I do love the special powers and things, though. But what the Fox and the Forest duet has for me a lot more than the crew is that you are trying to accomplish this goal across two or three full hands of clearing all of these gems off the board. And again, I feel like this culmination of the gameplay. For the crew, I would sit with my family and play, like, four hands. And I would sit with, uh, you know, Peter and Jerry or some other people on Tabletop Simulator and play, like, six games in a row.
0: Or 27.
1: Or 27. But it never uh, graduated beyond that. So interestingly, unlike pretty much any trick-taking game I can think of that I've ever played, and maybe this is just how I play, so this could be very personal to me, uh, the crew felt more like an activity after a while, which is fine. That's not a knock against it. I think it's a very, very fun activity for people who like trick-taking games. But I didn't feel like it was as much of a game, like in terms of... Uh, a game with, like, an endpoint, Unless you count the 50th mission as the endpoint, and God, that's way too much for a game like this, you know, for the average group to get through. So, I don't know, there's a little bit rambling. I still fully recommend The Crew. It's so cheap. It's fun. You should definitely check it out if you have any interest in trick-taking games, or at least play it on Tabletop Simulator. But, like, I was kind of over the moon for it for a while, and now I feel like it's fine. Like, I'm not going to turn down a game but i also don't know who i'm going to play with like i'm not going to sit down and have my whole my family go through the whole thing they're not going to enjoy the later missions at all peter and jerry and i will probably finish the three player campaign i've been doing but then i don't know how much more i'll play it i don't know if it's it's not it's not like the mind that i can just pull it out you know what i mean it's not like just one peter's number one game of last year that i can just like get it out with a group i find this to be a more limited game and honestly i think I mean, this might go into a, <laughs> a shelf life episode down the line. I could realistically see me keeping the Fox in the Forest duet and getting rid of the crew because the Fox in the Forest duet is a nice contained game experience, whereas the crew is a bit more amorphous in how you play it. Anyway, that's a lot. I don't even know where I stand on this after saying all that. So, Peter, take it away. <laughs> Yeah, I was about
0: to say, that was uh, that was pretty back and forth and back and forth, and I feel like that's where your feelings are for this one. Well, yes. Let me just get back to this Just One thing, because we haven't talked about this live since uh, since a lot of things have transpired. So Just One is still my game of the year for last year, although I will say Marvel Champions is moving up the list. How about you? Is your number one still the same?
1: Oh, well, I mean, if you watch Shelf Life, you know it's not.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I'm yeah. saying. You gave me yeah. so much crap. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. He absolutely, so much crap. The thing
1: is, Just One has not moved up for me at all. But both Marvel Champions, my number two, and Tainted Grail, my number one, have moved down fairly drastically. Tainted Grail more than Marvel Champions. I still like Marvel Champions quite a bit. And Tainted Grail, I still respect a lot of stuff about it. See, I was trying to think of what my number one might be. It might be like Cloudspire, or Pax Pamir or something. I'm really not sure yet. It's, it's become a, a tough challenge, so I'll have to revise that uh, list at some point. I
0: would think Cloudspire for you, but I would bet Deep Madness is probably up there, too. And maybe even Journeys in Middle-Earth. Wait, Deep Madness? That's not what you meant to say? That isn't mean, what uh, I meant You mean Cthulhu
1: to say. Death May Die? Yes, that is exactly yes. what I meant. <laughs> Cthulhu Death May Die might be like top six or seven. Yeah, and then Journeys in Middle-Earth, I need to play it more because I haven't played it in a while, but I really enjoyed it. So that could be like top five as well. But yeah, I don't know what number one would be, but it's definitely not uh, Marvel Champions as uh, flawed as I found that game to be and this kind of repetitive. And uh, it's definitely not Tainty Grail with the issues I saw with the later campaign in that. Yeah, even Marvel
0: Champions, even though that's not what we're talking about, has has had a interesting swing for me. It, it started very hot and then it cooled off very quickly and it's actually had a resurgence for me. When I started realizing how much card play there is in there and how many decisions I took for granted that I thought were easy decisions, I think there's a second level of thinking in that game. And I think it's one of those games that will dip for a lot of players because initially you're like, oh, wow, I'm doing this cool thing. Oh, wow, I'm doing this cool thing. And they're all cool for you. And so I think it rises for people quickly. And then it's like, oh, it's obvious I'm doing this cool thing. Oh, it's obvious I'm doing this cool thing. But I don't know that those are always the right plays is similar to everybody's, you know, when you get into a game, how you transition from, like, making obvious plays to then making smarter long-term plays, and I think that's where I am with Marvel Champions now, as I've pushed myself on the difficulty level higher and higher, and even, like, made my own difficulty levels higher than that. I feel like what's an obvious card play, and that's what Jerry, who we talk about a lot on this podcast, said to me, is a lot of times there are obvious card plays, but I don't think they're always obvious. I think people feel like they're obvious who are new to the game, because there are obvious better plays when you're you know, first starting, but I don't know that that's a better play in the long run. So I've been enjoying exploring that a lot more, although I still need more content for that one. But anyway, just one, still my game of last year. I just wanted to get that argument out of the way. How about the crew,
1: the Quest for Planet (laughs) 9?
0: Well, the crew, I'll tell you, I'm really enjoying myself. I know you said you're getting bored with it. I'm not. And I'm playing it with my family. I'm playing it with you guys online. I'm playing it with just you two player online. I've enjoyed almost every hand I've played of it. Certainly there are stupid hands where it's like nine of green is your goal. Well, somebody's going to probably play the nine of green the first hand and and take it. So those hands are kind of silly. But at the same time, I've still enjoyed playing it. I've never gone away from a hand and been like, well, I'm never playing that again. It's it's just a fun, enjoyable game. Now, I know a lot of times with games like this, like The Mind, like Just Won the last couple of years, they've been my game of the year. I don't think that's going to be the case with the crew. And let me tell you why. I think it's what you've said. I don't know where this fits. Like, after I play 50 times and I played through all the missions, like, I'm still excited to see what some of the upcoming missions are. But once I played through all 50 of the missions, and I'll be honest, I did read Mission 50. I didn't read all the way up to them, but I did read the last one, and it was pretty cool what you do on that last one. So I'm excited to play all the different missions and kind of see where it goes. And I could see this being something I pull out every once in a while, but I can't see this being something I'm going to carry with me and being a regular, like at conventions, I'm going to pull it out. So I don't know where this one fits in the long run, but I will say in the short run, I am having a blast playing it. Unlike you, I enjoy playing every mission. I like going through one by one by one, and I understand they're very subtle differences, but I'm also playing with my family and for them, The subtle differences make a big difference because none of them had played trick-taking games before, and I hope this is a gateway to other games for us. So I'm really enjoying the crew. Look, it's $15, and to compare it to Fox in the Forest, which is also $15, I'm going to say get them both. I don't know that we'll ever (laughs) review Fox in the Forest here. For $30, you're going to get two fantastic games obviously if you don't don't ever play two player don't get fox in the forest duet but this one i think at any player count you're gonna have fun i would say if you're new to trick taking i would get fox in the forest believe it or not before this for two players because gosh the amount of brain burniness that was going on at two players really i love that challenge but it was certainly i can't imagine someone new to trick taking trying to play a two player game of this
1: Yeah, and I should add, like, all the stuff I was saying is really looking at kind of what I do with my Shelf Life episodes, even. Like, is this game going to stay in my collection forever or for years? But Peter's right. If you think you'll have any group that might play this for a concentrated period of time, you're absolutely going to get your money's worth and then some with this. It's only, like, if you don't think you'll have anybody to play it with or if you're the kind of person who just wants to have games forever. I don't know if it has that kind of staying power or accessibility or, like, openness to play, But it's certainly great for what it is. I mean, absolutely, there's no question.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great light game if you have a group of people you know, like my mom, for example. She plays Pinochle every week with the same group of people. I think this is a game I'm going to give them when we're done with it and say, why don't you try this one week and see if you enjoy this? And I think it's a good way to bring card players into the hobby a little bit. You know, if you have those, like, dedicated people. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I'm certainly going to give it to them. Look, for 15 bucks, I might just buy them their own copy. But for what it is and for what it costs, it is amazing. And I'm not a Roll and fan. I would play this any day over any Roll and that I've played so far, even the heavier ones.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I've just been playing cartographers a lot with my family. The thing is, it's so easy to just bring out. Again, like, I know it's my number five, but I'm going back to the campaign structure I think as fun as it can be, I think it really hurts the playability of the crew in the end. You know what I mean? No, I I don't don't follow you on that, actually. Well, I mean, like, just the the drop, I should say the drop-in playability of the crew. This whole, like, really boring missions at the start, and then, like, ramping up to, like, really, really tough missions. I think it, it makes it harder to just bring to a game night or just bring to a convention and sit down and play the crew with some people.
0: Yes. I think it would be very hard to bring to a game or convention and not start at mission one. I kind of feel like you have to play through the beginning missions to kind of get to the later missions, but I don't know. I think it's, it's great for introducing people to trick taking. Like I've yes, introduced yes. my family to it and we started at mission one and we've played through, I think mission 20 at this point. And I don't know that we've lost one, maybe we lost one or two. And again, I think I lost one or two with you and Jerry just because of the variability, as you've said in the past. So we've certainly gotten lucky in situations, but at the same time, when you're introducing to your family or or to small kids or whatever else, we've talked about this before, you want them to enjoy themselves, feel clever and feel smart and kind of learn skills. For me, they're learning skills that they can take to other trick-taking games. And so for that experience, for kids around my kid's age, or if you're playing with a partner who isn't into gaming a lot, I really think this is a great game. And we talked about top quarantine games last week. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it. We talked about top quarantine games. This is great for that because you're going to have 50 missions. You're going to have 50 things to do. Yeah, if if you have limited time the way we normally are, hustle bustle, maybe you're not going to have time to squeeze it in. But everybody's got more downtime now because you're not, you know, if you got kids, you're not doing sporting events every weekend. You're not doing extracurricular ta- activities every weekend. You have to find stuff to do with your family. And this is a great way to do that. And I've enjoyed all my plays because of that.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a great way to end it. Uh, we definitely both recommend the crew. <laughs> there are some hesitations there. But, no, definitely play this one. It's good. The quest for Planet 9. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to quest into our design discussion, uh, trick-taking in both competitive and cooperative games, how we've seen it used, how we'd like to see it used. So I guess I'll start off here just with a little history. I already said I was really into the bridge scene in college. I've been playing Hearts and Spades and Euchre and Pinochle since I was a kid. I honestly have not played a lot of hobby trick-taking games, like even like the big ones like Diamonds that people have played. I would say, like, Fox and the Forest Duet and The Crew were some of the first ones, and that's mainly because uh, I I think I was like, why do I need to buy a game when I have so many great trick-taking games that I can just use and my deck of cards for already? So I think uh, that's where I'll start the discussion. I think trick-taking as a, like, hobby game can be a challenge to design for because, as you were saying, like, there's so many established trick-taking players already and you have to face off against the ease of a You know, 52-card deck of bicycle cards and playing a slew of trick-taking games for free beyond the $1 to $2 cost of a deck. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think trick-taking is a great mechanism. I haven't played Diamonds myself, and like you said, I haven't played that many hobby trick-taking games, but I think trick-taking is a great mechanism and maybe even something that could be incorporated in a bigger game someday. So think Mystic Veil and what's that other one, Edge of Darkness? Is that what it turned into? Yes. Yeah, think those two games. I think trick-taking can be part of a game, just like deck-building becomes part of a game. I haven't seen it yet, but poker's been integrated in so many games. Why not trick-taking? So I see possibilities for the future, but for now, I totally agree with you. I've stuck with mostly 52-card games myself, and there's so much out there. But let's talk more about what makes trick-taking so great. And some of the things I think you either need to have in there, or you should consider having in there, and why they're important to trick-taking. So, why don't you get started? What are some things you love about trick-taking games? So, I love the, the tricks
1: of trick-taking games, and I don't mean the tricks themselves that you're, like, capturing. But a lot of stuff happens with trump suits, which most trick-taking games have, and with uh, long and short suits. You know, like, the idea that I can play, like, six cards of spades so that you can throw off hearts or diamonds. So I think, like, that's a key element of trick-taking that is a lot of fun. And every trick-taking game I've had has something to do with that, including Fox in the Forest, Duet, and The Crew. And I think within that also, and this goes more to the team-based trick-taking games and the cooperative ones, the possibility of signals. Now, you know, some games like Bridge or with some spades players, signals are, like, really clear. It's like, hey, if I play a high card, I want you to continue that suit. If I play a low card, I want you to stop. Now, something like the crew, you aren't going to have that unless players kind of develop it themselves. But I still think you have, like, clear things, like even the little signal that, hey, when I have to throw off a card because I don't have any of that suit, here's the card I threw off. Why did I throw off that card? Oh, it must mean I have this kind of thing. So I think for me, like trick-taking is all about the fun plays you can make and the fun strategies you can have because of the unequal distribution of suits and values and also the signaling that can happen in play between partners or cooperatively.
0: Yeah, and speaking of throwing off, that's one of my favorite parts of trick-taking games is knowing when to throw off and when not to throw off and how to throw off because... You know, that is, I, th- I believe, a learned skill. You know, you always think, oh, if somebody else is going to win the trick, I want to play my lowest card. Well, that's not always true. Sometimes you don't ever want to win a trick in that suit. So you'll throw off a high card. If you throw off the nine, I might throw off the eight, even being your teammate, just to get it out of my hand so I know that you can win certain tricks in that suit. So I think there's a lot of strategy, even playing within each individual suit. And that comes to my other point, and this is something I really think makes trick-taking games what they are. I don't know that I've played one that breaks this rule. When you play a suit, you have to play the suit if you can. And I think the limitation there really leads to making strategy in trick-taking games. Because if I could just play any card, if you played the nine of diamonds and I only had the eight and I could play like the four of clubs just so I know my eight's going to win a diamond trick. I think it wouldn't work as well, but the fact that you're limited to playing within that suit, I think really amps up trick-taking games and takes them to the next level. So I would say for any designers out there, I think that is part of the key and core essence of trick-taking games. When you're designing games, you want to put limitations on people. And I think that's one of the key ones that trick-taking games do that really make them what they are.
1: Now, a drawback of trick-taking games I'll get into, and this is uh, true of a lot of games like this, like you just said, a lot of games use poker, but is the fact that you kind of... Well, I mean, you might not need to know how trick-taking games work, but a lot of trick-taking games are going to assume you have some knowledge of how trick-taking games work. And a quick anecdote that kind of comes to this, you know, a different type of game. Razupath, one of my friends who does a lot of reviews, he's a uh, French gamer, and he got Bottom of the Ninth uh, from uh, Dice Hate Me slash... Who owns Dice Hate Me now? Greater than games. Yeah, greater than games. He got uh, Bottom of the Ninth. And he was like, I have no idea how to play this game. It doesn't explain how baseball works. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you do need to know like what a home run is and what a strike is and what an out is and how all that stuff works. And the game does assume a lot of that knowledge. And a lot of trick-taking games, I think the crew does a better job because they slowly work you through it. But a lot of trick-taking games, it's kind of like somebody who's played a lot of tableau builders. or Somebody who's played a lot of like you know worker placement games or Puerto Rico-style action selection games. If it becomes too kind of set within the culture of gamers, then there might be assumptions about who knows it, and you forget that it could be a really tough thing for people to get into. So, you know, I think that kind of goes into the crew. Like, it is, in a way, a very accessible, casual game, but it is, in a way, way more complicated to learn and teach to a new player who hasn't done trick-taking before than its simplicity and casualness would imply. So I think trick-taking immediately, like, your idea of just, like, throwing trick-taking in, or not throwing it in, but including trick-taking in, like, a different type of game, like, you know, maybe, like, a Mage Knight adventure game or something, it sounds cool to me, but you're immediately making the barrier to entry much higher for people who don't know trick-taking. It might be zero extra rules overhead for people who know trick-taking, but it makes the game that much harder to learn for people who don't know it. So I think it's just something to consider, kind of, like, the trick-taking seems so obvious to some gamers
0: out there, and other people who have no idea what the heck you're talking about. But I think that's okay. And what I mean by that is, there are lots of games that take those assumptions for granted. Like, you have to know how to deck build to play certain deck builders. they next-level deck builders. And I'm okay with there being entry-level trick-taking games and higher-level trick-taking games. For example, Bridge. I'm someone who's played a lot of trick-taking, but I don't play Bridge because of the bidding. I, I I never got comfortable with that because when I was taught the game, people were trying to teach me all the little, like, signaling and language you do while learning how to bid. Now, I'm sure now that I've played 100 trick-taking games, I could play Bridge, but I don't think that is an entry-level trick-taking game. Nah, absolutely. <laughs> That's probably the heaviest one I can think of. But because of that, I think it's okay. Like, not every game has to be an entry-level game, and you're talking to the guy who likes most of the entry-level and lighter games. So I'm okay with the fact that in some games, it's going to turn off certain audiences because they either don't know trick-taking or don't feel comfortable enough with it. I I mean, I would be okay with that. So as a designer, as long as you know that you're doing that, I think that's okay to limit your audience to people who have a history with trick-taking games, because I think there are a lot of people out there that do have that experience. Look at Thunderstone. If you don't know deck building, Thunderstone, you know, especially with its various iterations, is way more complicated and adds way more things on top of that. Or Aliens Legendary, right? Like, if you don't know trick-taking, those games become much more complicated, which is okay, because they're assuming that people have done lower-level trick-taking games. Or, in those cases, deck-building games.
1: Yeah, no, no. I I agree with everything you're saying, absolutely.
0: Yeah, so for me, that's not a problem. But some of the other things I love about trick-taking games, just to kind of add it in there, is something you might want to consider. One of my favorite trick-taking games of all times is Hearts. And literally, it's one of the dumbest games. If you think about, like, what makes Hearts Hearts there is a card in there that just kills you. The Queen of Spades is that card that's like the assassin in code names, And you really, <laughs> a lot of times, don't even have a choice whether you're going to take it or not. It's like, if you get that Queen of Spades, you have 13 points right then and there, which is worth literally every single heart in the deck. Right? If you took all 13 hearts, you'd have 13 points. If you take the Queen of Spades, 13 points in one card. So it's got that swinginess to it, which I don't mind, but the thing they do and the thing they add in hearts and the thing that makes that game great is shooting the moon. I don't think hearts would be a game without shooting the moon possibility. And what shooting the moon is, it means you're taking all the hearts and the queen of spades. You are literally getting every point in there. And if you fail to shoot the moon by one card, so let's say somebody else takes one heart, which is typically what happens because good players will try to make that happen. You literally get 25 of the 26 points or if you eventually do shoot the moon, then everybody else gets 26 points. So you get zero points and everybody else gets all the points and you're trying to have the lowest score possible. So the capability of shooting the moon or doing these amazing plays and these having these amazing hands, I think adding something like that into your game really takes a trick-taking game to the next level. So I would certainly consider having some of those shoot-the-moon moments, even if it's not take all the bad cards, whatever it ends up being. Just make sure you have that really cool moment in the game, I think is a good thing to consider when you're putting trick-taking in a game or when you're designing trick-taking games.
1: Yeah, and, and I'll kind of reframe that a little bit and say that you should have something that makes a weak hand and a strong hand still fun to play and valuable to play. So Peter already said, like, shooting the moon is kind of like, you know, when you have all the points, it suddenly makes that hand good instead of terrible, potentially, (laughs) if you can make it happen. Sure. Uh, Another game that I really love is uh, Oh Hell, which is a really cool one that kind of has, like, decreasing and increasing number of cards in your hand, so the trick-taking becomes more and less complicated at times. But that one will give you points based on what you bid, so even, like, a hand that bids zero, as long as you can actually take zero, is worth a lot to you. And I'll say, uh, you know, the crew does it. Well, actually, the crew doesn't do it quite as well, but I think just the fact that everyone gets some task tokens in the regular play, so you got to figure out the way for even the weak can to take something, can work, although some missions don't do that as well. Uh, Fox in the Forest does it with a single special card I can think of. There's uh, one card where, because normally whoever wins the trick, the token moves towards them, which could be bad if it keeps on doing that. There's a card that lets you move it in either direction or ignore some of the movement. That's another special card. So I think anything that kind of like lets you reverse the expectation of what a trick means or what a hand means or uh, make like a bad hand suddenly good in some circumstances, yeah, I definitely agree that's a cool thing to kind of build into your design for trick-taking. Just, if nothing else, to take away some of the frustration that can come with a bad deal, you know? Absolutely.
0: And another key element of most trick-taking games, although Hearts doesn't have this, is a trump suit. And what a trump suit is just to kind of reiterate quickly is normally whatever is led diamonds are led. You play in diamonds until, and the highest diamond wins the trick. Well, Trump suit changes that up. Whereas if I don't have any diamonds, I can play any suit I want and the Trump suit will win that trick. The highest card in the Trump suit wins. So because of that, it gives me a way if I don't have any diamonds to still, let's say you add 13 diamonds, just as an example, well, if you had 13 diamonds at the beginning of the game and you led the first trick, you would literally win every trick without a trump suit because you would play all your diamonds one at a time and no one else could take it from you because they don't have any diamonds to take the lead from you. And that's the other part, actually, I just thought about, which I'll get into that in a minute, which is the lead, which I think is interesting. So, trump suit, to continue along that line of thought, trump suit allows people to change what is perceived because you have to decide when you want to trump and i think that is an interesting decision in the game as well because if you just had to play the highest card in the suit led what becomes less interesting and more about card counting which is another (laughs) subject as well we haven't talked about yet but yeah i just think it's interesting and i think you should at least consider having some kind of way that changes the game as mike said and trump suit does that like If I have the highest diamond, it doesn't mean I'm winning the trick because somebody might have no diamonds and they could throw a trump right on even the first trick.
1: Yeah, and I'll kind of jump off what you were just saying about card counting and stuff for a second, but not to get into card counting, but to get into something I suggest for people doing, like, hobby game trick-taking games, and that's decide what level you want your game to be. Peter was just talking about, like, it's okay to have really intense trick-taking games that assume some experience with the genre or mechanic, and like more, you know, entry level ones. You can make that into your design. So as an example, if you have a trick-taking game where every card is known, like the crew for example, every card is dealt out, so especially in like a, a three-player game, the second you see one player doesn't have any green cards left, if you've been paying attention, you know exactly what green card the other player has. That can make the game feel meatier for players who want more strategy but it can also make it more intimidating to play well for players who are kind of more novices. So you could, as an example, if you have a 50-card deck, only use 30 cards of those in a hand. You immediately take away a lot of the strategy with card counting, but you also take away a lot of the onus on the players to be able to do that and do that well to, like, succeed and play well. Another thing is uh, signaling. So I said, you know, with bridge there are very established signals and different players will have their own set of signals that they have to tell their opponents about in their card play. That's a high-level thing for people who are serious about the game, but you can build signaling into other mechanics, not in the card play. We saw with the crew, with the tokens that you can put on a card to show that it's in your hand and like where you know where it is in your hand. In the Fox in the Forest duet, you have a card where you can trade a card with another player and kind of give some hints in doing that. So I think um, if you want to make a more accessible deck builder, especially for like kind of hobby gamers, maybe build some signaling or some ways of doing things outside of the card play itself. So you don't kind of give players the possibility of building in these really intense signals within the card play like you might see in Bridge or Spades.
0: Yeah, gosh, there's so much to this topic that I didn't even realize we could do like 10 episodes just on trick-taking because there is so much to trick-taking. And one of the points I wanted to bring up was something you mentioned earlier, which was partnership. And a lot of trick-taking games have the concept of partnership. I do think that is important, especially when we're talking to a co-op audience and a co-op design audience. It's amazing to me that it took this long to come up with a co-op trick-taking design because Trick-taking is all about partnership and signaling to your partners. Again, not with hand signals and not with word signals, not like secret cheating ways of doing it, but signaling by the cards you're playing, I know what you have and what you don't have. And so there is a lot of that in trick-taking games, and it is, in my mind, something that is ideal for co-op design. So I think the crew may open up a can of worms here. I do think trick-taking in co-op go hand in hand or certainly team-based and trick-taking, but we've seen that over the years.
1: All right, well, I kind of went through all the main things I want to talk about. So, Peter, do you want to, I know you said we could do 10 episodes, but for this one episode, do you want to share any final thoughts before we uh, end the podcast?
0: Yeah, I would say trick-taking games, if you haven't explored them deeply, I think they go through the same cycle that I was saying earlier with Marvel Champions, where at first you're just playing the most obvious things, And then it might even get boring because you're like, well, I know what to play. It's pretty obvious. Until you learn the subtleties of the game and then it opens up a whole new world for you. And every partner you play with is different as well. So if you're playing trick-taking games, you get better, similar to the mind. The more you play with somebody, the better you get with them. So as a player perspective... Try to play trick-taking games with the same group more and more, and you will see you will develop a language or develop a way of playing cards that everyone kind of understands, and that's what makes these games great. So when you're designing trick-taking games, I think the biggest thing for me, there are two of them. Number one, make sure you limit people how they play their cards. So staying in suit is is a perfect way to do that. I think that is well established and I think that's very good. And number two is make sure that if I can't stay in suit, that I have a way of still winning the trick and Trump does that. And so I think those two things right there are great and other exceptions, of course, because there's no Trump in hearts, for example. But I think those two right there are a good way to start if you're thinking about designing a trick-taking game.
1: Yeah, the final thing I guess I'll throw in is uh, be careful with two-player trick-taking games. There are a few established ones for, like, 52, you know, regular deck card games. And then, clearly, Fox and the Forest Duet. I think Fox and the Forest Duet did well. I think the crew did well with making the puzzle big. But for me, I find a lot of the fun with uh, trick-taking games is having multiple cards from, you know, several players in the trick. So, you know, I just think uh, you have to tread lightly (laughs) when you're taking the player count down really far, which I think is also a challenge for trick-taking I think a lot of them might, unless you can get clever like the crew, have to be three plus player games to kind of function as intended.
0: I agree with all of that. And so, yeah, I want to see more co-op trick-taking design. And I, I feel like it's coming after the crew. I think the crew is going to open a can of worms here. No, I totally agree. And, and I'm glad it does because I think it's a great one. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-op Cast. Or we're not Co-op Cast anymore.
1: Hey, I usually make that mistake. Thank, thank you for doing it for once.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? So we're not co-op cast, although you might see that in some of our earlier uh, pictures still. So, But thanks for joining us on another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop. Bye, everybody. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another top five list. Hey, Mike. Yeah. I was taking some tricks the other day in downtown Baltimore.
1: What? You can't say that. Yeah, that's what the cops said. What the? You're going to cut this from the episode, right? <laughs>